Welcome back everyone to another episode of Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist, and I've got Dr. Carroll again with me today. Welcome back, Dr. Carroll. Happy to be back, Dr. J. Weren't you going to tell us what happened on your on-call weekend when you said the word quiet, or I mean the Q word as you would put it? Yes, it's pretty wild. And for those of you who don't know, those of us in the medical community are very superstitious by nature, and there are certain words we don't ever say. Hmm. I think I knew a few physicians who are a little more superstitious than others. Going to pretend I didn't hear that. I learned my lesson as an intern many years ago, and since then I avoid saying or even thinking the Q word while at work, but that weekend things were so slow that I broke my own rule and walked around the ICU saying it's too quiet at the top of my lungs. Mm, I know what happens when you say it's too quiet, so I can't wait for everyone to hear what happens. So a GI bleed had already come into the unit overnight. We didn't really have any history other than she'd been having some reported hematemesis and melanin. The initial hemoglobin was pretty low, less than six, and her blood pressure was borderline. So we brought her to the unit, keep an eye on her until GI could scope her. And you said we weren't sure of the history. So no history of cirrhosis as far as we know at this point, right? No, she had fatty liver, but no documented alcohol use or cirrhosis on her initial imaging. And you got to remember, it's always important to know if someone has cirrhosis, because when they present as a GI bleed, you could be dealing with actually a variceal bleed, which then completely changes everything. And I remember we had a pretty busy morning. I think we had at least one or two bronchs, right? We did. We had just finished when we came back into the unit, only to find that GI bleed patient being intubated, projectile vomiting blood everywhere, and massive transfusion protocol was also being started. Oh, okay. You're right. Wow. So... Projectile vomiting blood, we have to assume it's a variceal bleed at that point, right? Absolutely. Whenever in doubt, always assume a variceal bleed. So let me ask you, how would you want to manage this patient as far as meds go? There's definitely a few cornerstone medications or class of medications that need to be started. We definitely started a PPI and we also started octreotide. And then you should also start antibiotics on these patients because they're at risk for infection, in particular SBP. Exactly. Remember, using a PPI twice daily is equivalent to the drip. Also, octreotide is a great drug in this situation. How does octreotide work? It constricts the splanchnic vasculature and thus reduces the pressure. It also reduces mortality and helps more than half of these patients achieve hemostasis. And as far as antibiotics, brisophen is usually good enough, even a fluoroquinolone. Now, I feel like I remembered at one point about beta blockers being used in these patients. I feel like I always heard about using beta blockers in patients who are cirrhotic. Is that true? So that's a great question. Non-selective beta blockers like propranolol and natalol are commonly used in these patients, but only as primary prophylaxis against a variceal bleed and again as prevention against a rebleed. What's actually interesting is that studies have shown using beta blockers in someone who's a severe decompensated cirrhotic can increase mortality. Mm, okay, so that's where I heard it from. So our patient was on octreotide, a PPI, antibiotics, and had obviously just been intubated to protect the airway, uh, but we were still just having massive projectile vomiting of blood everywhere. And I'll tell you, if you haven't experienced it yet, once you smell a GI bleed, you never, ever forget. No, you're absolutely right. I feel like I remember the first time when I had a GI bleed and I, I could smell it on my scrubs for another week. It was awful. But so Dr. J, back to our case, I remember we had, of course, called GI to come in urgently to the bedside, uh, but the patient was literally bleeding out in front of our eyes. So what do we end up doing next? 
So if you love procedures and you love getting into the thick of things, which really is anyone who wants to go into ICU, you want to listen closely. What is balloon tamponade? It's something we've all read about. And for me, I've only had to do it twice, but that's actually what we ended up doing with this patient. Right. And at our institution, I know we have two types of balloons. Can you tell us the differences about these two types? So there's the Minnesota tube and the Blakemore tube. The main differences are that the Minnesota has four ports and the Blakemore only has three. But when you're in a pinch, either will do. The purpose of these balloons is to literally provide a tamponade effect in someone with uncontrolled bleeding varices until you can have them go through a more definitive therapy, whether it's banding via an EGD or even a TIPS procedure. Why don't you walk us through how we place these balloons? Right, so we used a Minnesota tube that day and one of the most important steps when you're placing a Minnesota tube or a Blakemore tube is to first call radiology so they can be at the bedside when you place this because they have to be there to help to confirm the placement of your tube in real time. But before you get to that point, first you're gonna check your balloons, make sure there are no air leaks. You can either inject air or saline into them. Once you then confirm that there's no leaks, you're gonna feed the balloon through the patient's mouth, past the esophagus and into the stomach essentially just like placing an NG tube. And then this is where radiology becomes important. Once you've measured that the balloon should be in the stomach, then you go ahead and have radiology shoot a picture for you to confirm your placement. Because if you're in the esophagus and you inflate the gastric balloon, you run the very high risk of esophageal perforation. It's like inflating a water balloon in a straw. Once you've confirmed the balloon is in the stomach, then you'll go ahead and inject air into the balloon to create a tamponade effect. I like that water balloon analogy. And then the next step is where the real ingenuity comes in. How do we maintain that tamponade effect? So what you essentially need to do is keep traction on the tube to maintain the pressure. And there's two ways of doing it. You could either tag, uh, tie a bag of saline to an IV pole and then use IV tubing and attach that to the Minnesota tube to help maintain the traction. Or you can do what we did. And I know, Dr. J, you've done this before because you've mm -hmm. talked to us about it. You can literally place a football paint football helmet on the patient's head and then tie off the tube using uh, the face mask. Exactly. So I had to use the football helmet in a similar case when I was in training. Probably every ICU in this country has at least one football helmet floating around. Another thing to think about is that ideally these tubes shouldn't be placed if GIs already scoped the patient and bands have been uh, put in place. The reason why is because the tube can dislodge the bands but there's always gray areas. This patient, un unfortunately, was bleeding out and there was no time to wait. They ended up passing. And one thing to remember is that variceal hemorrhage, even now, has an index mortality of 20%. Yeah, so super high chance of mortality. Um, but had the patient stabilized, the next step would uh, to uh, perform a TIPS procedure. And what you're basically doing here is placing a stent or a shunt that helps redirect blood flow from the portal veins to adjacent veins with lower pressure. And by doing so, you relieve some of the pressure that's causing the variceal bleed. TIPS is a really great temporizing measure if the patient stabilizes enough to make it to that point. Now, you have to remember, TIPS is not a benign procedure. You can actually get something called a post-TIPS encephalopathy. Usually, those are going to be the people who either had encephalopathy before the procedure, they have a high MELD score greater than 15, or even a child pube score greater than 10, and if they're elderly. And in some cases, if that encephalopathy is bad enough, these patients end up needing revision or even reversal of the shunt. One thing to note, if someone is going to get an elective TIPS, make sure that they don't have CHF, significant tricuspid regurg, pulmonary hypertension, 
or a systemic infection at that time. Yeah, all really good key points. This was a great case for me. I know a lot of people get very nervous managing variceal bleeds just because of how sick these patients are, how literally bloody the case can get quickly. But hopefully everyone should feel a little more comfortable managing these cases after listening to our presentation. Just not comfortable enough to shout the keyword at work. I don't know. I might have to test the waters. I like the action. Well, you're testing the waters. I want to thank everyone for joining us for another episode of Palm Crit 101. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. And next week, we'll talk about R-E-S-P-E-C-T and find out what it means to you and me.